Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Petro. Our regular season is done, but the OME annual conference is coming up. And so these next few episodes, we'll be hearing the voices of our featured and deep dive speakers for this conference with the theme of embracing change, moving forward, continuing to grow. On this episode, we will hear the featured speakers who will be talking on Friday, May 3rd, the second day of this three-day conference. And we're going to start with Sunil Singh. Okay, I'm speaking with Sunil Singh. Sunil, how are you doing? I am doing very good. And yourself, David? Always surviving, always surviving. Sunil, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you are connected to math. Uh, This question would have been easier 30 years ago when I was younger, but uh, there's more to it, but I'll keep it brief. Well, I'm connected to math now through just, I guess, the intersection of um, presenting and giving workshops and uh, sort of my second career, maybe my third career, because I was a classroom teacher for 20 years in various settings, even around in Toronto, my hometown. And then uh, I went uh, off to start a it was going to be the first math store school in Canada, but there there was a fire in 2015. And then I wrote three math books and writing a fourth after that and turning 60 next year. And as my daughter said, uh, most people peak in their 30s, but it seems like you're peaking in your 60s. So that's how I'm connected to math in 2023 and going forward. All right. All right. And you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024 in May. And your featured session is on the Friday. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean I'm sort of do a lot about storytelling last three, four years. But what I've really uh, wanted to do is really uh, focus it on fluency in that, uh, you know, fluency is a is a big topic in mathematics. And, you know, if we think about language and how we want to be fluent in language and be familiar with the cultures and customs and the, you know, the subtleties of language. Um, That also involves knowing the background of that language, in this case, mathematics, its history. So I'll be talking about the importance of storytelling as being a marker for fluency in mathematics. So can you give me an example of, you know, how storytelling is like it becomes that marker for fluency? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, for example, if you were to talk about, uh, let's say, a certain set of numbers which are very familiar, Fibonacci, well, he wasn't the first person that uh, came across those numbers. Yes, it's credited to him, but uh, in terms of the timeline of discovery, it was first discovered by Himachandra, who is a Sanskrit poet 150 years earlier because in Sanskrit poetry, they have two kinds of vowels, lagu and guru. So then I would start talking about where, you know, actually was first discovered. Then you can maybe talk about the mathematics at that time. So anytime you tell stories and narratives, either it's a confirmation of the story itself, or maybe there's a twist and turn, which is in there, which leads you in another direction, which gives you a sort of a greater sort of vista of the splendor of mathematics. I love that the uh, the Fibonacci numbers originated with a poet because I find them very poetic, very very deeply poetic. Uh, when when I think about all the relationships that the Fibonacci numbers hold. Well said. That's a, that's a really good point in terms of just again that whole patterning and symmetry and everything around Fibonacci and the fact that I didn't even think about it. <laughs> yes, there is a there's a nice link there in terms of poetry. But, you know, I also think that 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 leads me to think, you know, how that's a story in itself that, you know, it's not the person who first discovered them that is, I guess, for lack of a better term, given credit for it. 
or, or named for, you know, and, you know, that, that, that alone, I think is a, is a story to be told in, in our math classes because that happens all the time. Well, that happens all the time. And we have to be understanding that it wasn't a race because the communication between cultures at that time, I mean, people thought they were the first to discover it. And, you know, even something like Pascal's triangle, which I'll talk about in my session, you know, Pascal was the sixth person to uh, discover it in terms of timeline. Even in Italy, it's called the Tartaglia Triangle because the Italian mathematician, mathematician Tartaglia discovered it 100 years prior to Pascal. But we still should, it's, and that's, we shouldn't go, okay, call the Tartaglia or, or, or go back to the beginning, which again is another Sanskrit poet, Pingala. You know, we should celebrate the the the, the triangle and its uh, patterning throughout the cultures, and you know, we're and that's what storytelling does influence it. It, uh, it doesn't take away from any sort of discoveries; it just adds color and the texture to the stories which are already there, and that's why it's an important influence. Uh, maybe Pascal and Fibonacci just had better PR people. <laughs> Well, the printing press had come around by that time, so who knows, right? Now, you're also going to be doing a breakout session. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and in many ways it's related, but the breakout session is, is uh, something I've been doing uh, for a little bit called Uplifting Students by Uplifting Mathematics. And that's really, uh, I mean, it's, it's that simple that if we're going to uplift our students, all our students, um, we have to do with student-facing content you know, content rules all the time. And, you know, this is a session I also did. It was inspired when I went to a juvenile detention center uh, in San Jose before I gave a keynote. I spent a whole day at a juvenile detention center. And so we know that what these kids are missing a lot of things. And, you know, they all got excited about the content and the quality of the mathematics. And that's what I'm saying. We must always center the quality of mathematics if we're going to have the greatest experience uh, from our students in terms of uplifting them in joy and wonder and curiosity and all that great stuff. So is that by relating it more to them or is it more finding material that is going to, you know, they're going to seek interest in? It's, it's, it's definitely, yeah, well, it's, it's definitely relating to them, but it's really about the, uh, the idea that we must also uplift mathematics. Like the mathematics has to sit on its own. It does need any sort of condiments or increments or things like that. A good problem is a good problem has been such for thousands of years. So it's really, if we want to, you know, okay, we want students to be excited about mathematics. Well, what kind of mathematics, what kind of problems are we presenting them that they're going to get out of their seats or, you know, to, to do them? And so that's really what this sort of breakout session is. Here are some problems which transcend any situation, even students who could be, unfortunately, in a juvenile detention center, which work all the time. So these are like the, you know, wonderful problems, which are just, uh, just rich in the quality of the mathematics themselves. Okay. All right. So we look forward to seeing and hearing you at OME this uh, spring. Uh, Sunil, thanks for talking to us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the spring as well. <laughs> That was Sunil Singh talking about his Friday featured session on how storytelling can be a marker of fluency in mathematics. Next up is Nat Banting. Okay, I'm talking with Nat Banting. Nat, how are you doing? Doing okay. I'm doing great, actually. How are you? Good to hear. Good to hear. Nat, you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024 in May. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're connected to math. Yeah, so my main connection to 
the teaching and learning of mathematics is as a high school mathematics teacher. So that's my day job. I do that every day. And all these other things are kind of um, opportunities that have uh, sort of presented themselves throughout my career, some speaking opportunities. And I've spent some time as a university lecturer, a department head and a consultant in my school division, all these sorts of things. And so over the years, the OAME has been very kind to me and had me out a couple times to speak to their teachers. It has always been a good time. And so I will be in Ontario, but I will have written the sub plans and probably corresponding with a substitute teacher for my own class in May that will be happening in my high school in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Okay. And so, as I said, you are a speaker at OME 2024 in Kingston. And uh, although we are recording this in November of 2023, uh, I'm asking you to tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about in May of 2024. Uh, What can you tell us? Yeah, one of the fun things about having so much time to think about you know, what a talk can be is I, I, I just sat back and I thought to myself, what is interesting me right now about the kids that I get to teach on a daily basis? And something that has sort of over the last six months been on my radar is math education feels like it's at a point where it doesn't feel weird to ask teachers to you know use rich tasks or teach in a task-based environment or have a highly collaborative classroom or a very vibrant brand of mathematics like i think we have that message now for a decade plus and now we're starting to dig into it which is really fun for me as a classroom teacher who is sort of involved boots on the ground with the teaching of mathematics but also you know in other avenues like teaching pre-service teachers and speaking at these conferences so uh, one thing that i've noticed that I, I think that other teachers in the in the audience will notice as well is there is this fun relationship that sometimes happens between the task that you build uh, and the students that are solving it to do with the rules that you set. Rules are so fun for me because I came out of an era of math education where the rules were set by the textbook and the answers were in the back. And a lot of times the rules were kind of like, here's exactly what you do to satisfy these sort of algebraic problems. Uh, and that was it. And there was no questioning Uh, the textbook. And if a teacher was dutiful, they like read the teacher's notes beforehand and they asked the key questions. And this is how math class proceeded. But now that we move into this era of like rich tasks, you know, non-routine tasks, these sort of different things, I find myself oftentimes setting the rules myself, building these tasks. And the rules are there for a very specific purpose. And that is to generate mathematical activity. But what I've noticed is when I talk to teachers over over the years, Once the rules are set, they become very, very rigid. And we still have this in our back pocket as math teachers. And so I started to make notes to myself that every time a student bent a rule or broke a rule, but still was doing something mathematically brilliant and how that made me feel and what, how I acted as a teacher. And so that's what I'm talking about, sort of these moments from my own practice to try to recenter teachers on if we're gonna teach in this way that honors students' voice and honors student choice, our relationships to our rules have to change because we only built the rules to build a productive mathematical space in the first place. And if the student has found a way to be mathematically productive or meet your learning goal for that day, Adhering to that rule might not be the most important thing in that moment. And so what I'm going to try to do is sort of like peel back the layers of what can happen with specific examples. When you set the rules of a task and a student kind of goes right to the edge of those rules, but does so in a way where they're still demonstrating understanding. If we build those spaces to generate understanding, um, how we can continue, you know, to focus our observational lens on that observation or sorry, on that understanding 
even when we can feel the rules kind of being broken or bent by those students. It's kind of this very interesting tension, I think, that is, is quite unique to the math class. So we're going to play with that idea for an hour or so in Kingston in May. I mean, I'll continue playing with it uh, for the next few months, probably leading up to the moment where I get on the stage, I imagine. So I'm curious if you if you can tease us with an example of a time when a student bent or broke the rules with you. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's one from this uh, this week, I think. I think it happened on Tuesday. <clears throat> so I was giving them a task um, and we were working with linear functions. And so this was close to the end of our unit. Uh, and so I was having them build different uh, linear functions to different specifications. And one of the specifications is I didn't want this line to ever enter the third quadrant. And so I was trying to see how well, we were going to try. My learning goal was to play with domain and range. This idea that sometimes they will like, you know, and I mentioned teachers have had students do this. They'll sketch the line. They'll stop it before it goes in that quadrant and say, hey, look, that will never go into that quadrant. And I want to kind of sponsor that conversation about, you know, infinite domain and what does that mean? And so I was circulating around the room as the students were working. And there was one group that had their line drawn and they had it going uh, through the origin which I thought was incredibly interesting. And I, they did it on purpose to, to push the boundaries, right? They wanted to bend the rules. And I asked them, I was like, oh, so that goes right through the origin. Are you sure that's not in the third quadrant, right? And they went on to describe to me exactly, I think the other requirement was it had to have a negative slope. And so they had managed to avoid the third quadrant, but come like almost as close as possible. And they had described to me all these different things they knew about linear functions. But in the moment, there was this tension between like, well, are we sure that's not in the quadrant? Are we are we sure? Like, because if it's on the boundary, is it in there? And it was kind of this nice moment where students showed me their brilliant understanding by creeping right up to the edge and then justifying why they hadn't gone over it. And so that might be one quick example of like, if you open up a space for students to build and be creative, you can actually learn an awful lot about what they know by how they, like their relationship with those rules. And, and sometimes saying, no, sorry, that can't qualify actually will shut down their, their thinking. Uh, and so examples like that, and sometimes they just blatantly break them, but they say, well, I broke this rule because I wanted to do this, this, and this. And so if we're really interested in what they know mathematically, if they can tell you why they broke the rule, I'm wondering where we are with that activity. Do we take that away? Are we okay with that as teachers? And, and what does that say about what we're actually looking for uh, when we set students off to like act in these spaces? So how important is your reaction in those situations to sort of furthering the conversation? Exactly. And, and like, I, I'm always for the teaching move. You could shut that down. I, I think I could probably say whether or not I want to say that the origin is in the third quadrant or not. And maybe I'll leave that as an exercise to the listener. I always have the option to say, oh no, sorry. Like I don't want it to go through the origin either. I can make another rule and I can change those rules. But what I kind of want to talk about uh, in Kingston is this idea that remember why we made the rules in the first place. The rules were designed to build a space for students to be productive mathematically. So if they're providing evidence of that, we have to be careful what we're observing for. Are we just observing for the answer that adheres to all the rules or are we actually watching students acting mathematically? Because I think as math teachers, we have this tendency to just obsess about what must happen. And once we set those rules, they become like written in stone. And so sometimes playing around with that a, a little bit of flexibility or fuzziness at the boundaries of those rules, I think, and I'm going to contend uh, in May, can actually help us learn mathematics, right? Where breaking a rule can actually demonstrate their understanding, which is a, a somewhat counterintuitive uh, claim. 
Okay. So I look forward to uh, breaking some rules with you in May <laughs> uh, when you do your featured session. And uh, always, always happy to, to see you speaking at OME. So thanks for talking to us today, Nat. And uh, we will see you in May. Yeah, no problem. Can't wait. That was Nat Banting, who will be talking about students bending and breaking the mathematical rules in class. Next up is Florence Glanfield. Okay, so I'm talking with Florence Glanfield. Florence, how are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you, David. How are you this fine day? Oh, I'm very good. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to math. Yeah, sure. Thank you, David. So as you said, my name is Florence Glanfield. I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and I am a professor of mathematics education at the University of Alberta. I also serve the university as the Vice Provost Indigenous Programming and Research. My relationship with mathematics has been from the first year of schooling, if I can remember correctly. I absolutely loved what I thought was mathematics right from my first grade. So I have called and I've had a relationship with mathematics since I was five years old. All right. So Florence, you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024. I think you are speaking on the Friday. I am wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your featured session. Yeah. So the title of my session is called Humanizing Mathematics Teaching and Learning Through an Indigenous Worldview. And I'm going to speak a bit about one of the a common teaching across or a concept across many uh, different Indigenous nations is the concept of we are all related. And so I'm going to explore what does it mean by we are all related alongside teaching and learning mathematics. And what I really love about mathematics and what I've said out loud repeatedly is that mathematics itself, I believe, is indigenous because mathematics is all about relationships. So that's what my session is going to be a bit about, how we might restory mathematics education through this concept as a way to enact humanizing mathematics. So I'm wondering if you can give us an example of what humanizing mathematics means to you and why, you know, that's an important topic for us to hear about. Yeah, well, I think for the most part, our school curriculum and mathematics itself has, has tried to live cognitively or in the brain, I'm going to say, if you, it depends on the theory that you ascribe to cognition and learning. But for me, mathematics and mathematical thinking actually involves who I am as a human being and that I advocate for no longer taking the human out of the mathematics. And so how do we invite humans to contribute and be in this field we call mathematics. And I actually think like mathematics is a human activity, but our school curriculum often leaves humans out. It kind of reminds me a little bit of one of, I guess, I, I wouldn't even know if I would call this uh, a textbook. It's it definitely a, a math book, but it was, you know, mathematics, a human endeavor by Harold Jacobs uh, that it's been around for quite some time. A long but, time, David. I know that book well. <laughs> I, I, I really love that book because it it really, it shows that mathematics is just not a mechanical thing, you know? 
And I feel like if you're going to humanize mathematics, that's exactly what you want to do is you want to take the mechanics out of mathematics and, and make those connections to uh, us all. Absolutely. And, and how humans think and be different or differently, right? And mathematics actually has space for all of us. But again, we're caught in systems that often suggest that there is one way to think about mathematics, one way to do mathematics, right? So how do we blow that up and bring the human back into the space? Beautiful. Now, are you doing a breakout session as well? I am, but David, we can't talk about it because I don't think I submitted the proposal. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get on that. <laughs> I, I should tell you that we are recording this in December, so you've got some time. Okay, but I better get on it. The deadline was November. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll, we'll give you some space. Yeah, thank you. But it will be building more, you know, just given it will be building more around thinking alongside Indigenous worldviews. And I think this is so important right now for classrooms and for the field of mathematics itself, because Indigenous worldviews have not been seen in the past as um, worldviews that fit within mathematical thinking. And so my breakout session will be something further around that. I just haven't dreamt about it yet. So it's hard for me to talk about it. Uh, the stuff of dreams. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, Florence, thank you for talking with us today and giving us a preview of what you'll be speaking to us about at OME 2024. We look forward to seeing you this spring. And thanks again for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Florence Glanfield, who will be speaking about relationships in the mathematics class from an Indigenous perspective. Up next, we'll hear from Marion Small. Okay, hello and welcome. I'm here with Marion Small. Marion, how are you doing? I am great. Marion, I wonder if you could tell us all a little bit about yourself in terms of mathematics. For sure. Um, I was a professor of mathematics education for many, many years, and I have uh, had lots of opportunities to both write books for K-12, for teachers and for students, and have had the opportunity to work with teachers all around the world on math education. All right. And you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024. What are you going to be talking about this year? So I thought a little bit about what to do this year that might be different than in the past. OME is one of my favorite conferences, so it matters to me to kind of do something interesting. So I have an unusual title this year, How Many Baby Steps Make a Giant Step? And normally, I actually do use that question to talk about measurement activities with little kids. And we use it to talk about non-standard units and why you need more units sometimes than other times. But I changed it up. The theme of the conference this year is about affecting change in classrooms and, and how teachers do that. And I thought that I use that same title to think about what it feels like to embrace change. Do you take lots of baby steps or should you be taking giant steps? And what is a baby step and what does it look like and what is a giant step and what does it look like? And how big does your step need to be if you really want to change your classroom? So you, you have spoken to teachers for years and you've supported teachers for years. Yeah. 
I I wonder if you lean more to baby steps or to big steps. Well, I'm not sure I should give it away, but I will. Ah, um, okay. Sorry. I, no, it's okay. <laughs> I have a feeling um, from my experience working with teachers that if our steps are too baby, we revert too quickly. So I'm feeling that you might take baby steps for a few things, but I'm having a feeling you better do something giant somewhere. Okay. Uh, so no commitment there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Without giving, again, too much away, I'm wondering if you can uh, give us just a general uh, idea of what a baby step might be. Absolutely. So I've talked to teachers who will decide, well, sure, I'll use open questions. I'll do like one a week. That's a baby step. When you say when you want to make something part of your habit, I feel like maybe you have to do it more frequently. It must be more embedded in your practice. So to me, that it's not a bad thing at all, but I do think it's a baby step. Okay. And what would be a giant step? A giant step is an example. Um, I had a teacher I was working with, and one of the things that we were noticing together is that he was simply scaffolding too much. Every time a kid looked at him, he would like give them another hint or whatever. And so one of the things we did is he made a commitment that for at least two weeks, he would promise not to do that. Ironically, we even had him sign a piece of paper and put it in front of him so that he would kind of remember not to do that. And it really did make a difference. And I thought that was a bigger step. Deciding not to scaffold unless you absolutely needed to and sticking with it for a period of time, I think is a much bigger shift. Okay. Now, can you think of a time when you were a young teacher that you either took a baby step or a giant step that was pivotal for you? Wow. I'm not sure I can remember, but I can say that when I look back at some of the things that I was annoyed with when I was a young teacher, I'm just, I find them ridiculous once you have maturity. And so when I would be, when I would, um, for example, tell students, uh, they'd ask me questions that I thought were frivolous, you know, like, where should I write my name? And when I was a young teacher, I thought that was a ridiculous question. And I've since learned it's not a ridiculous question. And so at some point in my career, and I can't even tell you when, I realized that you have to take these these questions that people are giving you at face value. This is something they really are worried about. And it's your obligation to pay attention to that. And, and stopping being annoyed, I felt was a big shift. Okay. And now you're doing a breakout session as well. What's, uh, what's your breakout session on? Well, I've been working with a number of school districts in Ontario and elsewhere lately where, teach, where systems are trying to gather information on students and trying to figure out where they're at and what they need. And it's something that lots of people are focused on, both because ministries of education are focused on it and the systems in general are. And one of the things that we've been talking about is is what kind of data do you really want to collect? Because I think you can't just collect data. You have to think about the kind of data you really care about. 
So for example, I, I think you have to make priorities and think about what should I give the most attention to and how should I measure progress on that data? So should assessment be focused on what we often call knowledge and application, or should it be focused on understanding and thinking? Those are very different decisions and would lead you to collect very different kinds of information. And we often don't actually think about it consciously. We just sort of collect data. And I, I think it requires conscious thinking. Um, do we collect data on the process standards or only on the content standards? Should we be measuring growth or should we be measuring achievement of grade level expectations. So all of these to me are giant questions. And I think that we probably don't talk about them enough. And I'm hoping we'll engage in a meaningful conversation. And so who who do you want to come to that session? Like who's your audience there? I, I think it, it varies. In honesty, it would be great if administrators were there, but I really feel it is for teachers. I'm always talking to teachers, but these kinds of questions really affect systems. It affects people who work in ministries. It affects people who work as supervisors or directors or whatever. Although I'm, when I'm speaking, I always have the teacher's lens, I think, foremost in my mind. Okay, so we look forward to hearing and seeing you at OME 2024 in May. Uh, you are speaking on the Friday. Marion, thanks for speaking to us today. Nice to talk to you. That was Marion Small speaking about whether you should be making big or small moves in the mathematics class. And finally today, we're going to hear from Lauren Bacham. Okay, we're talking with Lauren Bacham. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm doing well today. Thank you, David. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, we are lucky to have you as one of our featured speakers at OME 2024, your featured speaker on the Friday. Before we talk about your featured session, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd love to. I have been in education for the last 15 to 20 years, somewhere around that range. And so I've taught in both urban and rural settings. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like something that I care greatly about is student identity um, and how um, how students identify, can describe and understand math within their world and how that's related to where they live and why that matters. So my research really prioritizes how teachers' identities shift, but also how teachers' identities impact student identity work in the math classroom. I'm a mom of two young math learners, which is really exciting as well. So I love following their mathematical journey as they're continuing to learn about themselves and the world around them. And I, I love to think about mathematics as a space for play and as a space, uh, as a tool for seeking justice for students and teachers, especially those of historically excluded populations. Okay. And so, as I said, you are one of our featured speakers on the Friday of OME 2024. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about your featured session? I sure can. I'm excited to share a little bit about the research that I've done that looks at the way that teachers' identities impact student identity work, and then also just the bi-directional relationship of how student work can actually impact and shift teacher identity. So in our session, we're going to be really thinking about, you know, we hear, we hear the I do, we do, you do model and how that's used in math education. So just kind of troubling that as, a, as an identity shift, do I have to 
do things, act things, look like you as my teacher in order to develop a positive math identity. A math identity has become a very focused piece of what we do in math education right now. We want students to develop math identity that is positive and have a positive disposition towards mathematics to view themselves as mathematicians. But uh, oftentimes we don't recognize the impact that others' identities, historical identities, societally defined identities are impacting students, and then how students also go back and impact teachers in the way they view themselves. Uh, so we're going to be looking at identity and the way that those shifts transform inside of a classroom and just thinking about how we can embrace the full humanity of each other in our work. So I'm wondering if you can give us a, a an idea of what teachers could do like tomorrow to help foster that positive identity in their students? I think something that teachers could do tomorrow to foster the identity work in their students is just to create space for them uh, in their full humanity. Uh, it's to begin to acknowledge that students are complex beings, just like ourselves, that they come with uh, historical identities that are impressed upon them and social identities that are impressed upon them. And when we pretend like those identities don't exist, their identity work is cut short. It is, it is erased in a way that doesn't allow them to embrace their own full humanity. And then they can't source that as a, they can't use that as a source for learning for themselves. So trying to find ways that allow students to embrace their full humanity is probably my first step. And that's honestly just recognition and acknowledgement that students have deeper identities and more complex identities than we often allow them to entertain in our classrooms. Okay. And uh, you are also going to be doing a breakout session besides your featured session. Can you tell us a little bit about your breakout session? Sure thing. I'm going to be doing kind of a workshop that's just talking about creating that space for student identity work in the math classroom. We're going to be looking at boundaries and norms that we set that sometimes challenge student identity work and why we may make some intentional shifts to open up that space to allow them to embrace their full humanity. And then we're going to be specifically looking at curricular choices that we can make that allow teachers to look and inspect their own biases, but also make sense of how their own identity is influencing the curricular choices that we make inside of our classroom. Uh, we'll be looking at a unit that's designed to encourage student identity work, and then looking at how that shifts teachers' identity in the process. Now, do you see that as a companion to your featured session, or could someone go to one and not the other and still get some of the same things? The workshop is certainly connected to the featured speaker session, but I will say that people can attend the workshop and still get something out of it if they don't attend the featured speaker session or vice versa. Okay, so we uh, look forward to seeing and hearing you in Kingston this year in uh, OME 2024. Lauren, thanks for talking to us today. Really excited. Thank you so much, David. Can't wait to be with you all. That was Lauren Bacham. We'll be talking about how teachers' identities impact student identities in math class. Now, besides those featured speakers, there'll be lots of other breakout sessions each day to choose from. This is a face-to-face -face conference in Kingston, and right now, pre-registration is open with full registration ready to be open soon. Interested participants can register at our MCIS registration site. That link can be found in the podcast description. 
Next week, we'll do a preview of the speakers doing what we are calling deep dive sessions. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, stay safe.